Let's open up our Bibles now to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, we are picking back up in our study of this great book. We have uh, been away from it for five weeks now, and so I am looking forward to getting back into the book of Romans. And we are looking just at a couple verses this morning, so I want to read those together. Romans chapter 6, we're going to be starting in verse 12. Hear the word of the Lord now from Romans chapter 6, verse 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make, it, to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your living, supernatural, inerrant word. Thank you for this good gift that you have given us, that through your word we hear the voice of our God. Through your word we, we can know you. By your spirit working through your word, we are transformed supernaturally, first from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Lord, we are transformed into the likeness of Christ, our Savior. And I pray your word would accomplish its good work this morning, that blind ears would be open, blind eyes would be open, blind, deaf ears would hear. Lord, hearts that are cold and stony would be made to live. Lord, those who have been backsliding would be called back to faithfulness. Those who are struggling would be encouraged. Lord, all of us would be further transformed into the likeness of our Savior. I pray for myself as I proclaim your word, that the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it has been five weeks since we have been in the book of Romans and want to do a little refresher for us as we get into these verses so that we kind of get back in the flow of what Paul has been saying. So far, Paul has made it abundantly clear to us that sin has devastating consequences in our lives. Sin is so terrible that it can actually damn a person to an eternity in hell. Sin is so utterly abhorrent to God, in fact, that it only took one. It only took one sin to plunge all of humanity into a state of corruption and condemnation. In fact, not just humanity into a state of corruption, but all of creation itself. That's how serious sin is. One sin did that. Further, Paul has shown us that we are all slaves to sin. We are all bound in sin and in death. And this is proven to us by the fact that all of us die physically. That's proof positive that we are bound by sin and death. The inevitable consequence of sin is death, and that's not the worst part of it. The worst part is for those who die apart from Christ, apart from trusting in Him, there's a much greater death that can be experienced than that physical death, the, the eternal death, the second death in hell. 
As Paul has shown us, there's only one thing that could, could rescue us from this fate that all of humanity finds itself in. Only one thing could save us from that. And Paul has gone to great lengths to show us what that is and to explain to us the glorious benefits of justification by faith alone. It is faith in Christ alone that can rescue us from that condemnation that we are all under. And Paul has shown us what it means to be justified by faith alone, whereby God declares those who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ to be righteous. In fact, credits to us in exchange for our filth and corruption, Christ's own perfect righteous status. Well, then we arrive at chapter 6. And Paul makes a shift in his argument. Chapter 6 really begins the third major section of the book of Romans. The first section was focused on the condemnation in sin of the entire human race. Paul just does a deep dive, takes us right to the edge of that pit and shows us what it looks like, what state humanity is in. The second major section focuses on justification by faith alone. How can we be rescued out of that pit? How can we be made in right standing with God? How can we have that that declaration of condemnation removed from us and Now this third section that begins in chapter 6 focuses on sanctification. So condemnation, justification, and now sanctification. One of the big ideas that Paul is showing us is that justification by faith does not produce Christians who are cavalier or indifferent to their sin. That's one of the accusations that come. If you say we're not saved by our own ability to do the right things and not do the wrong things, then you're going to create a whole bunch of people who just do whatever they want to do all the time and say God has to forgive them because they believe in him. And Paul says that is not how this works. Those who have been saved by faith, those who have been justified by faith, are not indifferent to their own sin just because they're saved by faith. No, justification always brings sanctification along with it. In other words, saving faith always brings holiness with it. If it doesn't, you've got something other than saving faith. That's what Paul has been showing us. And so in chapter 6, so far, Paul has told us that we have died to sin. We've been set free from that bondage to sin that we were under. We're no longer under the tyranny of sin's reign. We are literally, as believers, alive with Christ. We've been made alive with him, and we now live under the reign of a new master. We live under the reign of grace. And so, although we have died to the reign of sin, we are not yet dead to the reality of sin, are we? Every Christian still has to battle with this enemy. We're not under the the tyrannical reign of sin where we can't do anything but sin. But we're still influenced by sin. By by the the unredeemed humanness of our flesh. By, By this mortal body that will someday be done away with. But for now, we battle with sin in this mortal body. So at the very instant, Christian, that you trusted in Christ's death, burial, and resurrection as your only hope for heaven, your only hope for salvation. At the the very moment of your conversion, you were delivered instantly from the penalty of sin. That's the doctrine of justification. You you have been justified, declared righteous, declared not guilty. Not just 
it's not, it's not just that you're, you're declared not guilty of the things and, and that's not held against you, but you are credited all of the positive righteousness of Christ as well. So it's, it's, it's the old saying goes, justification is just like I never done it. <laughs> Maybe you heard that. But it's more than that. It's, it's also just like I always obeyed. This is what we're, we're credited with in justification. Deliver from the penalty of sin. We've also been delivered from the dominion of sin in that we've been set free from sin's reign over us. We're not a slave to sin. We're free now. Previously, all we could do was sin. And now we're free from that. We're not living under that bondage to have to sin. And now we are in the process of being delivered from the power of sin. That's the doctrine of sanctification. Justification happens in a moment, in an instant. It's a past reality. Sanctification happens over a whole lifetime. And we need to be careful not to combine these two doctrines erroneously. Many cults and religious systems do this. And they they make sanctification the basis for justification. In, In other words, how you live... What you do and don't do, that's the basis for your salvation. That's not the gospel. That's not the gospel message. Our sanctification does not determine, it does not cause our justification. Rather, it proves it. It shows it to be authentic. How we live proves that we have been saved. It doesn't cause us to be saved. And we need to hear that over and over and over again because we're predisposed to getting those two things mixed up and thinking we need to work and earn our salvation. Many of you were raised in a strict religious system that taught that explicitly. Even as they read the same Bible, still taught that. No, our sanctification doesn't cause our justification. It proves it. It shows that it, that it happened, that it's authentic. Those who have been saved by grace through faith in Christ alone will bear fruit in keeping with salvation. But the truth is, we do continue to battle with sin in this life. We don't reach a state of sinless perfection where we never struggle with sin anymore. We, we actually have trouble living up to our position that has been given to us in Christ, don't we? We've been made holy. We've been credited with Christ's own righteous status, but our lives so very often are not a perfect reflection of this. And so this is where sanctification goes to work in us. This is where sanctification meets us. The goal of God in sanctification is to bring our practice in line with our profession. It's to transform us into the likeness of Christ. We have been credited with his righteous status, and now God is working in us to transform us into his likeness. One theologian says it like this, Sanctification is the work of God's Spirit in our willing hearts, minds, and hands to conform us to the character of Jesus Christ. A shorter definition for sanctification would just be the word set apart. That's what the word literally means. In the Greek, set apart, holy, consecrated. That's not a very hard concept for us to grasp. Sometimes we, we think past the answer because we try to think in spiritual terms, but we've all got things in our own homes that are set apart. 
They are consecrated. They are dedicated to a particular use. And so as a kid, if you ever used your mom's fine china for an outdoor midday snack with your friends while you were playing, you likely learned a lesson that day about sanctification from your mother. If you used your dad's golf clubs to hit big rocks out of the field in the backyard, he probably taught you something about how some things are sanctified and they have a particular use and we don't use them for other things. Certain things are set apart for certain purposes. We understand that. This is the work of God, the Holy Spirit, in sanctification. It's that the Christian would be set apart. That we, by the power of the Spirit, would dedicate our bodies, every aspect of ourselves, to God. That we would take all of us and set it apart for God. No longer for common use. No longer for for worldly use. No, set apart for God. In, In other words, to live in such a way that matches what God designed us for. There are things our bodies should do. There are things our bodies should not do because of who we are in Christ. There's a story told of Queen Victoria who ruled the English Empire from 1837 to 1901. She was 11 years old when she learned that she would be next in line for the British throne. And a little 11-year-old Victoria burst into tears when she received this news that she was next in line for the throne. After she composed herself, it's recorded that little 11-year-old Victoria said with great conviction and purpose, if I am to be queen, then I shall be good. Now, was she perfectly good? No. Those who have ever had an 11-year-old go, no, we know for sure. (laughs) But at age 11, she recognized something very important. She determined with passion and conviction that her character needed to live up to her lofty position. If this is the position I'm going to hold, then I need to up my game. I'm going to be good. She discovered something about herself. She discovered I'm going to be queen, and it made her want to live in a manner worthy of that, worthy of that crown, worthy of that title. And Christian, here's what God says about you. It's far better than being the queen of England. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Christian, that is who you are positionally because of the work of God. You didn't earn, earn that spot. You didn't earn that title. You didn't earn that standing. God gave it to you, and God intends you to live that way. He intends you to live like that right now, not just in the, in the future, not just in heaven one day. I'll, I'll really live out being a chosen race and a royal priesthood and a, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. What a beautiful statement that is. No, God intends for us to live like that right now, to live up to the standing that we have in Christ. But the question we struggle with is how in the world do I do that? How do I do that in this life? How do I do that? How do I live separated under Christ in this mortal body? That's what Paul tells us here in these verses that we're looking at this morning. Verses 12 through 14. Paul gives us a twofold command. The first part is negative. The second part is in the positive. The first command in the negative, stop letting sin reign in your body. 
How do you live up to the status that God has given you? Number one, stop letting sin reign in your body. Look at what he says in verse 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. Here we see the negative command of God through the Apostle Paul. These words in Greek are a present imperative tense. So literally, he is forcefully saying, stop. We could translate this rightly. Therefore, stop letting sin reign in your bodies. Stop presenting the members of your body to sin. John MacArthur in his commentary Speaking of the first part of verse 12 says, Paul personifies sin as if it were a powerful monarch who is determined to reign in the believer's life just as he did before salvation. So Paul's kind of presenting for us sin as this, this ruler, this king who has been dethroned but is determined to get back onto that throne in your life. The apostle Peter tells us a similar thing. He personifies sin as someone who is at war with us. First Peter chapter 2 Verse 11, I urge you to abstain from fleshly lusts, which wage war against the soul. This is what's going on in our life. This is the battle that rages in our mortal flesh. John Bunyan, the author of Pilgrim's Progress, I've said before, I have a hard time believing anyone could go to heaven that hasn't read Pilgrim's Progress. It is, not really. It is, if you haven't read it though, make every effort to read it today yet. But he also wrote a lesser known book entitled The Holy War. And in this book, he does what what Bunyan does. He does this in Pilgrim's Progress as well, if you're familiar with it. But here he he personifies the human soul as a city, and he names it Mansoul. And those who are familiar with with Pilgrim's Progress know that's exactly how Bunyan would name this city, Mansoul. The city of Mansoul has five gates. There is the ear gate, the eye gate, the nose gate, the mouth gate, and the feel gate. And the city of Mansoul has an enemy, and that enemy is named Sin. And so Sin would come on a daily basis to attack Mansoul at one of these five gates. Sin would speak through the ear gate. Or paint vivid and alluring pictures to the eye gate, etc., etc. But the interesting thing in Bunyan's allegory here is that Mansoul could never be toppled by an outside attack. There was only one way man's soul could fall, and that was the only way they could be conquered by this enemy of sin is if someone on the inside of man's soul would open one of those gates up and let the enemy come in. And Bunyan, as usual, is exactly right. This is where sin wants to reign. Paul says sin wants to reign in your mortal body. Mortal means liable to die. It's our physical body that Paul's talking about. This is where the battle is being waged. The battle for personal holiness is being fought on the battlefield of our physical body. It starts in our mind with what our thoughts are. Stephen Lawson says the battle for the Christian life is the battle for the Christian mind. That's very true. We can't do anything unless we have thought about it, and decided to do it first. It's our mind where the battle rages, but it includes our eyes, the things we look at, our ears. What is it that we're taking in? What is it that we're consuming? It affects our tongues because what we speak accords with what's actually in our heart. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. 
Is your mouth filled with slander and gossip, complaining, boasting? Well, friend, if it is, it's because you've given sin reign in your heart. That's the only reason your mouth would be filled with those things. Sin wants to reign in our hands and the things that we do. Sin wants to dominate our feet, where we go, our lives' direction. Sin wants all of you, from the top of your head to the very bottom of your feet, every square inch of you, every ounce of you, sin wants to dominate that, rule that, control that. Sin wants to own you. This is not some hypothetical, mystical battle. This war is being waged in the very bodies in which we live. And so the Christian has been regenerated, made into a new creation, but this new creation is living somewhere. Where's this new creation living? In our mortal bodies. Our our sinful flesh remains the center of our problem because sin is always trying to reign inside of us. And so we, we tend to think, don't we Christians, that our biggest problems are outside of us? It's easy for us to slip into thinking that. Even if we theologically know better, even if we know well the doctrine of the total depravity of man and our, our tendency to sin, that we needed rescued because there was no good thing in us, but, but even then that that tries to keep rising up, it's still easy for us to think, you know what the, the biggest problem is? It's the world. The world's so evil. What is wrong with people? Have you thought that in recent days at some point? If you've seen anything of the news, at some point you've gone, what is wrong with people? There's no question that the world is evil. The world is trying to entice you to sin at every single turn. Maybe we say it's the devil. The devil's just continually attacking me. And you know what? It's true. We're being assaulted by a real enemy from every angle, but that is not our biggest problem. The biggest problem isn't what's outside of us, it's what's inside of us. The enemy of sin is still inside of us. And Paul warns us, do not let sin reestablish control over you. That sin that once controlled and dominated and owned you, do not let it do that again. And so when Paul says, do not present your members to sin, he's using a military term. It's the, it's the term for surrendering your weapon to the enemy. If you've ever seen any action movie whatsoever, there's that scene You know the scene where I'm talking about where the bad guy goes, give me your gun. And the good guy hands it over and you're like, what are you doing? Don't give him your gun. He's going to just turn it on you and use it against you. And now the bad guy's got the good guy's weapon and he's going to use it against the good guy. He's going to use it to accomplish all of his good purposes. He's got more firepower to do it. That's the imagery Paul's using here. He says, don't let the enemy use your body as his weapon. Do not hand it over to him. Don't hand the enemy your gun to use against you. See, sin wants to to dominate you. In fact, sin wants to kill you. And so Paul says, stop giving your body to the enemy. Stop offering yourself to your enemy. Stop offering yourself to sin. When we present the weapons of our bodies to the enemy, he will use them against us. He will use them to dominate us. Sin won't settle for for anything less than that. We can't give a little bit. 
All right, I'm giving my eyes to the enemy for the next 30 minutes tops. I'm giving my mouth to the enemy just until I get, I've got something I got to get off my chest. I'm giving him that, taking it back. That's not how it works. That, that's never how it works. When we present the weapons of our bodies to the enemy, he uses them to dominate us. He will not settle for anything less than total domination. He will not settle for anything less than to sit on the very throne. Sin wants total control. Sin wants total submission. Therefore, Paul says, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. Here's what Paul's telling us. In that moment, we all have this, right? We, we sin. We, we speak in a way that we shouldn't have spoken. We look at a thing we shouldn't have looked at. We do a thing we shouldn't have done. And on the back end, we go, I thought I was past this. How did this even happen? Here's what Paul's telling us. In the moments leading up to that, you can literally say this. No. Sin says, hand over your eyes, hand over your mouth, hand over your, your ears, your hands. And we can say, no. He says, stop letting sin reign in your mortal body. Stop offering yourself to sin. Believer, you can say no. That's what it means to be free. You can say no to sin. And so this is Paul's first command to us. It's in the negative. He says, stop. Stop letting sin reign in your body. Second command then is in the positive. It's not that just we just cease doing one thing. Stop letting sin reign in your body. He says, offer yourselves to God. Verse 13, but present yourselves to God. As those who have been brought from death to life, your members to God as instruments for righteousness. So he says, don't present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. Do present yourselves to God as instruments for righteousness. The, the Christian life isn't primarily about saying no to sin. It's about saying yes to Jesus. Yes to God and all that he would have for us. We're, we're not just free agents who do whatever we want, whenever we want. The members of your body will be given to someone. See, we're not, we're not these autonomous creatures who just get to keep them for ourselves. I think what I'm going to do is keep the members of my body. I'm going to be my own man, and that's how I'm going to live my life. No, what Paul's saying is the members of your body will be surrendered to someone. You are not going to be able to hold on to them, either to sin to be used as instruments for unrighteousness or to God to be used as instruments of righteousness. But it will be one of those two things. There's absolutely no middle ground here. Sanctification, then, is this process of continual surrender to God. It's saying no to sin and yes to God. Sanctification is living a holy life that honors God, and it is a cooperative effort. Let me explain by what I mean by cooperative effort, because to explain that, let me just point out two extremes we need to avoid when it comes to the doctrine of sanctification. One is this extreme that some people teach that absolutely everything is up to the individual believer. They, they have to drum up the power to do anything good for God. Their growth in godliness or not is totally up to them. It is, it is purely a matter of the human will. 
You're not living righteously. You're not obeying God the way you should. Work harder. Believe harder. That's an error. But, but, but there's a ditch on the other side of the road, and that is error number two, extreme number two. Nothing is up to the individual believer. They have no responsibility whatsoever on themselves to, to develop discipline, to make right decisions. Their growth and godliness has nothing whatsoever to do with their human will. Well, if God doesn't give me a desire to obey in this moment, I guess I just can't. If God doesn't give me a desire to read my Bible, I guess I, I guess I won't. If God doesn't give me a desire to witness, I'll never do it. Friends, that's not how sanctification works. In either one of those extremes, here's what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, starting in the second half of verse 12. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Paul's not talking about justification here. He's talking about sanctification, the working out of salvation. He's not saying work for your salvation. He's saying live out your salvation. So Paul, Paul is encouraging the Christian that they must decide to live a holy life. They must decide to develop holy discipline. And he's saying that God is the source of the power behind our will. We say yes to God because he's at work in us. So if, as we have a desire to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. It is only because it is God who is at work in us, both to will, to, to desire, and to work for his good pleasure. It's all of God, but, but Paul doesn't tell us that on its own. He doesn't just say, it's God who works in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. On our end, here's what it looks like. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You tracking with me? Just because this thing is cosmically true behind the scenes doesn't mean that we don't have, that we're not held responsible for the choices that we make or the, the, the effort that we put into it, the discipline that we put into our lives. Paul says this in Colossians 1 verse 29, for this I toil, struggling. Okay, so that's toil, struggle. That's hard work. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works in me. Here we see it in one verse, the effort of the believer, toil, struggle, and the divine enabling, initiating power of God. I'm only able to do this because he's not only providing me the power, he's providing me the desire. This does not mean the cooperation between man and God and sanctification is a 50-50 partnership. It is absolutely not. It is not the case that God does his half, you do your half, and then you grow in godliness. All the power is his. But God chooses to act through the means of cooperation and submission on the part of the believer when it comes to our sanctification. Again, this is not talking about how we are saved. When we are saved, we are down in a pit. We can do absolutely nothing. The Bible's imagery is slavery and deadness. You can't do anything. It is God reaching down. You are not afloat somewhere in the ocean clinging by a thread to a life preserver and God plucks you out, but 
You've had to hold on. No, no, no. You're dead on the bottom of the ocean and God reaches down to you, brings you up and makes you alive. It is all of God. We call it monergistic. It is all of God. Sanctification is a cooperative effort. God supplies the power. God supplies the desire. God supplies the ability to do so. But the believer must walk in holiness. Must do that. I once heard a preacher say, sanctification is not the result of a spiritual abduction. It is the result of a spiritual submission. That's true. John MacArthur says, God's will is active in our lives only as our wills are submissive to his. And so a large part, a large part of the battle, a large part of Christian maturity for that matter, is the discovery that spiritual growth is synonymous with spiritual discipline. It says in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7, train yourself in godliness. I love this simple, realistic command from Paul. Train yourself in godliness. There's no pietism here, no mysticism, some kind of special blessing, something's going to mystically happen to you. There's no hint of this one-time decision that makes a once-for-all obedience or holiness or joy or faith or patience or contentment somehow just easy and natural for us. I prayed a prayer one time, and this should all be easy. No, Paul uses that word train. It means discipline. Discipline yourself. The, the Greek word is the word where we get our word gymnasium. It's, it's literally referring to Difficult, rigorous, physical discipline. That is a fitting word for what goes on in sanctification. Because sanctification is discipline and hard work. It's what it means to be transformed into the likeness of Christ. We are being brought from the kingdom of darkness where all we knew was sin, all we knew was rebellion, all we knew is disobedience. And God positionally in Christ credits us with his righteousness and saving faith in us is working itself out in practical righteousness. But it is hard work to live that life because sin is waging war in the members of our body constantly. We have no off days. We have no off hours. We are at war 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. D.A. Carson says, people don't drift towards holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate toward godliness, prayer, obedience to scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. We drift towards compromise and call it tolerance. We drift towards disobedience and call it freedom. We drift towards superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and call it relaxation. We slouch toward prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we've escaped legalism. We slide toward godlessness and convince ourselves that we have been liberated. End quote. That, that, that is so true. We, we will drift. We, we're not going to just stay in one place. But we're never going to drift in the right direction. We are always going to drift in the wrong direction. On, on our trip this week, Andrea and I were staying in a hotel in Orlando that had a lazy river. One of those things where you just sit on an inner tube and it just takes you around. And uh, I was trying to wait on her to get ready. I think she was trying to get an inner tube or something. This doesn't, none of you care about any of this. But, but the pull of the water was constantly pulling me away from her. And I actually had to work 
to be able to stay where she was at until she was ready because the water itself was constantly pulling me. It wanted me to drift away from her. And that's how life is. We are constantly being pulled in the direction of ungodliness, of, of wickedness. We never are just being, we're never just going to pull up our feet and hold on to the inner tube of life and drift in the direction of godliness. That is never, ever, ever going to happen. And the thing with this lazy river, it was able to keep you inside of it. You never floated out of it to the far ends of the pool. You always stayed in this thing uh, because of the direction of the water. And that's how life works. It will take effort if we are going to live a godly life because all of the pull is pulling us in the other direction in our flesh. But Christian, you can say no to sin. You can. Not only that, you must say no to sin. But our obedience is not the ground of our relationship with God. Our relationship with God is the ground of our obedience. We've got to get that order right. We, we, we don't have a relationship with God because we've been obedient. We can and will be obedient because we have a relationship with God. Our, our obedience is empowered by what God has already done, not by what we do. So Paul says this in, in verse 14. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, but under grace. When Paul says here that we are under grace, he doesn't mean, so just do whatever you want. That's how people like to use that expression. I'm not under the law, I'm under grace. And what they mean is, I can basically ignore God's commands. Don't tell me that I'm sinning. Don't tell me any of those things. I'm not under the law, I'm under grace. And absolutely the only problem with that is every single other thing that Paul says in chapter 6. That's the only problem with interpreting that statement that way. <coughs> is 100% of everything else that Paul says. No, here's what Paul's telling us. You, Christian, have gone from one kind of slavery to another kind of slavery. We're no longer under sin. We are now under grace. We are under the controlling reign of grace in our new nature. He said this before in chapter 5, verse 21, as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness. There's a new master in the lives of believers, the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a new dominating force that is driving our Christian lives. It is not now the tyrannical rule of sin in death. It is the overruling authority of the government of grace. But no one is a free agent. None of us are without a master in our lives. None of us are free to just live however we want. You are a slave, either of sin or of Christ. <coughs> and make no mistake about it, Jesus makes absolute demands of lordship in our lives. Just as sin is not content to have a little sway in your life, it wants all of you, it wants the throne. Oh, see there, it's only mimicking and twisting Christ's rightful place in your life. He will not be content for you to dip your toes in the water and say, I'll give you this, but I'm holding on to this. No, he makes absolute demands of lordship on our lives. But here's what else it means to be under grace. And there's so much encouragement to be found here. We have received God's unmerited favor. Christian, we have not earned anything. We've not earned anything but wrath and death. That's what we have earned. That's the paycheck we have 
coming to us for our lives, for our sin. But God in Christ gave us love instead, gave us life eternal. And God's love, Paul says in chapter 5, verse 5, has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And that love enables us to keep God's command In fact, God's will is now written on our hearts so that we gladly keep his commands. His commands to us are not burdensome. They're life-giving. Christians gladly submit to Christ. By grace, we delight in knowing and doing God's law, and grace is mighty to help us in doing that. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 9, verse 8, and I'll close with this. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. We are under the reign, friends, of grace and praise God for that. Praise God for grace. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for rescuing us from the slavery to sin and death that we are under from removing us from the tyrannical reign of sin and now placing us under the reign of grace in Christ. Thank you for making us a new creation in Christ. The old is gone. All things have been made new. Thank you, Lord, that that though we live in these mortal bodies that are constantly pulling us in the direction of sin, that this war wages within our very mortal flesh. Lord, we have a promise from you that that will not always be the case. We will one day be free free from sin, free from sinning. Lord, until that day, help us to run to you. Help us to fight this battle in the power of your spirit as you have given us. Lord, to to be transformed day by day, hour by hour, more and more into the likeness of Christ. That our lives would testify that we have been saved, that we have been converted, that we have been made alive. We've been set free. Pray, God, that you would make us increasingly faithful. Cause us to trust in you more. Cause us to hate our sin with passion. Cause us to wage war against our sin, to seek to put sin to death at every turn. Cause us to live in awe of your grace and the mercy that you have shown us, Lord, that where we are tempted to sin, we will be reminded of your love for us, this love that has been poured out by your spirit into our hearts and it would cause us to joyfully submit to you. Lord, as we do that, I pray that you would make us faithful ambassadors for your kingdom, your your kingdom of grace. Lord, that even as Christ sits enthroned on our lives, we would declare his lordship over all that he has made. Faithfully and boldly, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.